0: welcome to team up moves this is the podcast where we put superhero rpgs through their paces today we are concluding our run of the three-player rpg anyone can wear the mask by jeff stormer I'm Fiona, and I'm joined by my partner in Not Doing Crimes, Stephanie. Steph, are you ready to dive into some back matter here?
1: I am ready to dive into so much back matter without doing crimes. Don't do crimes.
0: We're also joined by our guest from this run. You heard them as the city of New Arcadia in the last two episodes. It's Cece Mancuso. Cece, thanks for being here.
2: It's great to be back.
0: Well, it's so good to have you here as we get into some of the discussions about Anyone Can Wear the Mask. Now, before we get into some of the more critical aspects of our discussion, we have to start with the origin story. This is the part of the show where we're going to talk about the character creation process, any GM prep, sort of what went on behind the scenes before we got into our actual play. Now, Anyone Can Wear the Mask is a lot more... I would say straightforward uh, than say champions Mm -hmm. or even something like masks. And there actually is a order to the character creation process and the city went first. So CC, can you tell us what you did for character creation and specifically what you were thinking about making New Arcadia?
2: Absolutely. I I think we started with, well, one thing to note, I think about all of our prep for this game is that it was highly collaborative. So despite the fact that this game is split up at least on a surface level into three different roles, we were all negotiating and working together at every step of the process, which I think is important in a game like this. But as for the creation of the city itself, I think we started by negotiating somewhat the size, uh, a feel of certain analog cities that maybe we wanted to draw inspiration from, and then we started drilling down into the individual neighborhoods. I think it was interesting to me to, I approached the design of the individual neighborhoods from, from almost a video game level perspective of <laughs> what are the different types of stories that we can tell in these neighborhoods and, and not just what, what is going to be visually different, which is not quite as important in a storytelling based game that is entirely word based, but what, what kinds of stories can we tell in these different neighborhoods and how are they going to be distinct from one another? on the level of gameplay and not just the level of aesthetics.
0: I can sort of imagine like the four, you know, the four regions of this and tune, you know, starts in VR Heights and has to move to these different areas. Exactly. It's sort of,
2: you know, grassland, desert, Iceland. (laughs) You have to have the (laughs) whole...
1: Iceland. (laughs) One of the things that I noticed about the ways these neighborhoods fit together is that in creating these neighborhoods and figuring out uh, you know deliberately or otherwise, what they are and what we see, you've really created a whole kind of city. And we turned out to be playing in a city that had a lot more in common with Boston, which is where he and I live, and San Francisco and Seattle than with let's say Detroit or Lagos or Aberdeen or Miami. It was ended up being a city that had the problems that come with growth, with gentrification, with valuable real estate, with an economy that is based on some combination of commerce and IP and universities. Yeah, and I didn't know if you were going for that, but it really what the city was like as a whole had as much of an effect on what happened as the aspects of the individual neighborhoods.
2: Agreed. I think part of that came from the fact that the game actually cues that. Explicitly, it asks you to, correct me if I'm wrong, Phoebe, but explicitly it asks you to create neighborhoods in which your hero is going to feel familiar and comfortable and at home, and then some spaces in which they're not going to feel familiar and comfortable and at home. And I think as soon as you start thinking about spaces explicitly through that lens, You have to start thinking about things like gentrification. You have to start thinking about those moments in the life of a metropolitan space where who is comfortable and welcome in that space shifts in an important way. So I think that was kind of cued by the game itself.
1: That's right. That's right. And it also tells you what your assumptions are about cities. True. What's a good example? Part of my family is from Norfolk, Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia doesn't have a gentrification problem as far as I know. It has a what part of the city does not belong to the military problem, and it has a the rising waters will overtake the entire city soon problem. But gentrification turns out to make for some really good and some really familiar kinds of hero versus villain struggles. That's one of the other things we found out.
0: To get back to your point, Stacey, I I really do like kind of highlighting that it is built into the game that there are places your hero is not as familiar with. It and it is not as comfortable. Yes. And that, yeah, that tells you things about, about privilege, about how cities are to too many people. And I think it's also kind of, and we'll get into this probably a little bit later as well, but this game is very much described as showcasing the relationship between the hero and the city. It's not between the hero and the villain. It's between the hero and the city. And that's even underlined in the two-player rules, which are one of you play the hero, one of you play the city, and then just collaborate on the villain to Mm, kind of fill that part Interesting, yeah. Steph, what can you tell us about coming up with Toon? I
1: wish I could tell you more. She popped up in my head. She is based on a hybrid of a couple of real individuals who are Women in indie rock kind of my age or older who have just been around the scene for a long time and have done things to support their local and, and sort of regional rock scenes above and beyond just making music. And everybody in a given place knows their name and everybody who's really familiar with that kind of music knows who they are, but they never break through and they're just widely admired and and thought of as as people who are there. And I can even, you know, name them because they're all people I admire. I was thinking about my friend Gilmore Tamney, who does all kinds of of Boston-based events about two musicians I don't know personally, really. Sue Harsh, who used to be in the band Scrawl, and Talia Zedek, who's been in many, many bands in and around Boston. Just people who've been there. And I also, I have, I'm used to playing teenagers. I'm used to playing people who are naive and idealistic or naive and ridiculous, who are just having the problems of youth and making their way in the world for the first time. And I wanted to create someone who had been in the city for a long time and had a legacy. And I also just wanted to challenge myself by playing someone who is at least my age, because the typical problems of first world rich country adolescence can be almost too typical or too familiar. If you've gotten very used to being an adult who plays teens, and I wanted to kind of get out of that for once.
2: I like that aspect, too. I like the fact that, that we were kind of playing against type there. And there was another point I was going to make, but now it's found completely out of my brain.
1: I also wanted to be able to bring some part of culture in immediately. Something that had been going on in the city that we could think about, you know, other than crime.
2: yeah. I think that helps. I think that helps to have a focus. And I think it helped to build the culture. Ultimately, the question of each neighborhood and whether Toon felt familiar in that neighborhood is to what degree is the scene in this neighborhood? And that kind of helped give us a shorthand also for how the different neighborhoods were interacting with other kind of organic cultures throughout the city that maybe were or were not finding those spaces hospitable. That is
1: exactly right. And that Brings us to another point that's only now becoming apparent about this game, which is that if your hero's relationships are primarily with other super people, the game does not work. I don't think it works. This is a game that requires its singular hero to really have a life outside of super. what, what Marvel editors used to call superhero business. And that can be crime-fighting. You could do this and have your hero be a private detective, have your hero be in law enforcement, uh, have your hero be some other part of the criminal justice system. It would be fun to play a defense attorney. You can do this and have gallery artists. You can do this and have educators. But you need to have a hero who's got fairly intense and complicated networks of links to people without powers who live in the city.
0: There's one more part of the hero creation that I want to kind of highlight, and that is that the game asks you to choose your suit. And besides the delightful little pun on that question, and what suit you choose is supposed to then kind of inform what your personality is and what type of hero you present to the city. And I can just read them out. There's clubs. You'll be the shield of the people, protecting them so they can thrive. Diamonds, you'll be the icon that they look up to for inspiration. Hearts, you'll be the smiling face, a friend to those who need it. And spades, you'll be the dark knight that avenges the injustice they suffer.
2: I like that a lot. I think one of the most valuable things that these games do, especially speaking from the perspective of someone who studies genre fiction and who studies games, is that they do this kind of sorting and creating of these categories that we can then play around with as far as labeling characters that already exist. And that is, I think, so key in a role playing game like this that is so story focused to give us those categories that then allow us to connect the kind of character that we want to see in our game to existing characters that maybe we have some sort of a baseline for without making it a one-to-one comparison.
1: That is exactly right. That's one of my favorite aspects of this game, I think, of of, of these rules, is that you get to choose among four kinds of stories that your hero belongs in, really four ways that your hero sees themselves. Before we leave off the hero creation, I kind of want to mention the question, how powerful are you? Because this game, because you're creating a city, And a hero who works against forces that threaten the city seems to lend itself to heroes who are not cosmically powerful. But you do have four power level options to the character creation question, How powerful are you? which are street level vigilante, friendly neighborhood hero, gifted with great power, and a living god. And the city does not have to be on Earth, it does not have to be literally a place that has six to 65 to 120-story buildings and either has or could use a subway line. You could play this game on a space station, as long as the space station is big enough to have neighborhoods and competing communities. You could play this game, honestly, at the level of an entire galaxy if you want to play it with space opera and choose gifted with great power or a living God uh, for how powerful are you and just have each neighborhood be a different planet. But what you'd need would be the sense of a complex system of people who aren't superheroes and aren't supervillains going about their intricately embedded lives and having a history together.
0: That'd be fun to try out. I think that I'd love to see this at the cosmic scale. If we play it again. I can talk a little bit about making the villain and actually the game sort of prompts you to not really. It asks you to prepare kind of a list of threats that could come up. And as we saw in the actual play, when a specific number card comes up, you sort of pair a type of threat to that number. So if it recurs in the different neighborhoods, you, you kind of have a, a, a repeating uh, motif or, or ongoing threat in that way but it actually sort of specifically says don't reveal the villain. And so going into it, I was, you know, just sort of sketching down some ideas of like, here are some problems that could come up and and the game even cues you that they can be, you know, robbers or other supervillains or mundane problems in the hero's life. And so we did kind of see that with labor, you know, the strikes and all of that. It wasn't just crimes that that uh that Toon was having to confront. I'm
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah, please, interject go ahead, yeah. that union busting it is or should be a crime. And if the NLRB were, you know, ideally on the ball about this, those things would be crimes, but they're not uh, they're not individual visual visible crimes of violence.
0: Absolutely no, agree. I'm proud SCIU 500. So, you know, I I I know I know what you mean there. So when I was coming up with the threats, I was very much trying to align with what is Toon's power level? What are things where we could see her have an effect? It wasn't going to be a volcano in the middle of this city. And of course, playing into this this indie rock scene person kind of thing, I'm of course just, I'm just falling back onto my... 90s kid go-tos of the man and worrying about selling out and what's playing on the radio i wrote down paola as a possible villain name uh, i really liked being inspired by what is what is the antithesis to tune
2: yeah i could definitely see that when we did get the villain reveal everything kind of clicked into place and i was like okay i see where this is coming from
1: <laughs> yeah and and the villain the villain turned out to be this sort of sleazy airbrushed completely appropriate and delightful combination of scooter brown and like Elon Musk and with, maybe with a dash of Robert Moses
0: and and honestly we didn't i I sort of noticed this kind of late was you can play this game a little bit more by the book and actually let the questions and the answers that the hero and the city have as far as What are their weaknesses? What do they fear? What do they see reflected in the villain? The way it's laid out in the rules, you can actually answer those questions first and then use those to create kind of who the villain is during the downfall. Oh,
2: interesting.
0: Mm. Anything else on character creation? Not really. Let's move on. Now let's get into the letters page. This is kind of the core of the discussion here. And I want to start first question over to you, Steph. What was this game trying to do? This game is
1: trying to, I think, tell a story about the relationship between a hero and a city that maximizes on the fly, off the cuff, collaboratively improvised storytelling. If you imagine a kind of triangle into which all RPGs fit, where the apex of the triangle is Something more like video gaming or mathematical simulation, just crunchiness. And then the two bases of this triangle are improv theater and novel writing. This game came very close to improv theater. There are dice rolls, but there aren't a ton. There are limited opportunities for any one player to even design a story or an arc that you can deviate from. There are a series of scenes some of which are crucial and some of which are not that the three players have to improvise together so it's it's a game that's designed to collaboratively improvise a story about the relationship between a hero and a community and it does that.
0: CC would you would you agree how how successful is anyone can wear the mask? I think in the sense that it's trying to tell that
2: very picaresque story of incidents in the life of a superhero rather than the classic save the cat kind of script treatment. I think it's pretty successful. I think it helps us shorthand larger stories. I agree with Steph. It feels very close to improv theater. It feels like The parts of the game that are most meaningful are being able to create moments of callback to parts of the setting, to characters, to events that have already been established, and to create that sense of interconnectedness. And in that sense, I think there are lots of opportunities to do that. And it is very successful in creating that sense of piecing together or shorthanding the larger story, the larger life of this hero. By zooming in on these very particular moments and then talking about the relationship between them.
0: Yeah, I want to bring up I want to bring up the the callback piece there, because there's a part of two parts of this game that unfortunately we didn't see during play, and that is the jacks and the aces. Mm. If you draw a jack, they are one of your close allies. They're a friend, and they're going to come and help you in their particular neighborhood. If you roll a 1 in the neighborhood after the jack is out, it gets bumped up to, I think, a a 4 or 5 roll. Likewise, the ace represents someone who has the piece of secret knowledge, the weakness of one of the kings. And so if you come across the ace, you can use that to remove the influence of the king of a neighborhood and get your die back. And then there's the other way of removing the the king is that you can sacrifice a jack. So the ace is like the kind of the here's the calm way of getting rid of the king. But if you draw the jack, you know, your sidekick they can go to the mat for you and take themselves out of the game in order to remove the influence of the king. And I would have loved to see those come up. We played this game very straight, you know, very much. We we did a half a deck, but we just shuffled it sort of per the rules. And unfortunately, those moments of callback weren't in our game. And so I think what I'd like to sort of talk to the two of you about is both hypothetically, how would that have worked? And then looking a little bit at that we did miss these and how that makes you feel kind of about the rules and and the way the game is structured.
2: I definitely felt like this was missing. So it's great to know that this is encoded in the mechanics and that it's something that we just didn't get to see. I think there was so much emphasis laid on, especially in the moments where Toon was successful in solving a problem, on defining a particular person who was present, who was positively affected by Toon's actions, who could potentially then recur. And there was somewhat of a sense that the inspiration that Toon was accumulating and could then use to buff other roles that didn't go so well, there was a sense that that was tied directly back to these individuals that Toon had saved. And there was a, I think I was feeling a sense of, oh, I wish we could have brought those back more explicitly. And I know they come back during the downfall. And there's a kind of... Or not the downfall. They come back during the uprising. But at the same time, I feel like those moments where inspiration was being used, it was an opportunity for us to say, oh, look, it's so-and-so who you saved earlier. And here's how now they're paying it forward and helping you in turn. And I feel like that's the the mechanical purpose that something like the Jack would serve. So agreed it's an important mechanic in the game and it is a shame that we didn't get to see that in our in our play.
1: It is At the same time I am, I've got in front of me the somewhere peaceful write-up, which is part of the game rules which tell you what happens if you draw a jack. The jack is a person who shows up and has an encounter with the hero who may be just meeting them. or it could be someone who the hero's known for a long time, but someone who needs to do some kind of transactional, interchange with the hero someone who needs something from the hero first and the hero is told by the rules to describe how you give this person what they need and earn their trust and then you've you name the person in the game journal or the game notes as an ally and then the ally can help you later so the jack and ace mechanics it would have been lovely to see them but I think the game would still have felt very episodic and it is not a game about being on a team it's really a game about a protagonist who moves through a city interacting, CC, I think you said picaresque. Yes. Picaresque is a kind of novel that was popular in the 18th century in which a somewhat suspect or, uh, you know, outside the law character travels around and has adventures that don't necessarily lead anywhere fast. These mechanics that we didn't see in the game don't seem like they would change the game's picaresque single hero flavor. And it it really did feel like it was designed to simulate the comic books that follow single heroes around, especially early in those comic books runs where every supporting character in, you know, issue five or issue seven has to be introduced.
0: Agreed. So how do we feel about the deck mechanic overall? Because... it's it is sort of lovely, you know. There there are other games that that use decks really well. For the Queen, of course, comes to mind as one of the the greatest examples of an emergent story coming out of draws of cards. But because of some of the variety of the types of cards that come up, the pacing of this game can be very uneven. And I think in a forty five minute game, that's something that I can totally roll with. Our game was going on to two, two and a half hours, and that's with half a deck. I, I worry about that level of variance when you're kind of committing that much of your time to the story.
2: I kind of wonder to some extent how this game would feel different if it was played with a full deck, but over multiple sessions. I think that kind of a play format might actually benefit from that kind of a structure and the sense of This week on such and such, let's see what so-and-so is up to. A sense that you're returning to it. You don't need to remember each and every scene exactly. Just sort of a general takeaway, who was affected. So I think if you were going to play the whole thing all the way through, it would benefit from something like that structure of playing over maybe even three or four sessions and checking in at the end of each session to recap a little bit. I agree as far as the length goes. It's something that felt it felt increasingly difficult to weave in these moments and to make it feel like a coherent arc. And maybe that in and of itself was a mistake as far as trying to force it to feel like an arc when really it is a game about sampling moments. Uh, But it did feel increasingly difficult as we went on. And I think it would only have gotten harder with the longer the game kind of went on in the second half.
1: It's just not paced for a campaign it is paced like a theater game every five to 15 minutes a new thing happens and together you make up a story about how your protagonist reacts to the new thing that happened and after a while you can do callbacks but it still has this extremely episodic pacing if Anyone out there wants to play this game in four sessions with a full deck, don't let us stop you. <laughs> but it felt like it was designed to be a single session or a two session game. And it both solicits and undermines the development of an overall story arc. It solicits that story arc because you're supposed to be leading up to the downfall and then leading into the uprising. But it undermines that story arc because if you're a comic book writer and you are leading up to a boss fight, a confrontation with a villain who's been undermining the city and your editor at Marvel Comics will not tell you whether you have two issues before the Kingpin shows up or 12, <laughs> that is arguably very realistic for what it means to write company owned superhero comics. Uh <laughs> But, you know, those people are professionals. And I honestly didn't like the sense that we were trying this at home, trying the idea that as people who were making a superhero comic together, we had no control over how many issues we got before the boss fight twice. I I didn't like that. And I feel like a another system that allowed the GM or someone to control the pacing and used randomization elements in other ways might have been more satisfying to my play experience. Though maybe my complaint is that you can't play this game and be Chris Claremont. (laughs) You can be other kinds of very talented comic writers who think in episodic terms. And frankly, you can probably be a a very good Silver Age writer, a writer who really thinks issue by issue.
2: Steph, I feel like you're just begging for someone to make a one-page RPG about specifically being Chris Claremont, and it's gonna happen. It's going to exist on the internet sometime soon.
1: Will it be called being Chris Claremont? Possibly. Will it be not safe for work? Cz is shrugging for those who are listening. <laughs> I'm just looking at the game rules. <laughs> I, I, I so would I, absolutely play anything called being Chris Claremont.
0: All right. Well, that's coming coming later on. Team up moves. We will write and produce. Uh, being Chris Claremont. Um, one thing though that you brought up, Steph, and and I, I want to talk about this as well is. The downfall and the uprising. These are the fixed things. These are going to happen in this game. This story will have that terrible moment of defeat and this story will have that coming back. And I think that's reflective of a lot of superhero stories. And I, I love it. I love that this is incredibly explicit, that these are not tied to cards that could come up. These are not tied to rolls of the dice. You know, you're not waiting. I mean, look, I've been, you know, as a GM, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've tried to learn is when not to call for roles because you'll be in this position. It's like I'm begging them to fail because there's this amazing thing that could happen or I'm begging them to succeed so we can go out on a high note. You know, don't put yourself in those positions. Don't, you know, you have to be able to go either way with the dice. And so I really do love that it's like, no, this is a story that's going to have a bad part and this story is going to have a triumph at the end because that's the type of story we're going to tell. So let's just make it happen explicitly.
2: Yes, 100% agreed. I feel that so much, especially as someone who's been DMing as much as I have been recently, that moment of wishing for the dramatically interesting and satisfying thing to happen by chance and just needing it to happen. And, and I appreciate that this game has a mechanic that just makes it happen.
1: I guess. I mean, if, if you're running a more conventionally structured game... And you really want the dramatic thing to happen. And instead you get a critical fail or a critical hit. You can, you know, bring in the villain's more powerful sibling and say, but then you have to fight the real boss.
0: Um, Yeah, but if it's 945 and the session ends at 10, like, again, we get back to pacing.
1: Yeah, but pacing is not... I think knowing on the one hand, you know that there's going to be a low point and then you know that you're going to go out on a high note. On the other hand, it may be 945 and and you, you've drawn the downfall and you haven't drawn the uprising yet. So you get the same problem and you have even less control over it.
2: I would note that one thing that I found interesting about the downfall and the uprising is that I think I I categorize a lot of game mechanics when it comes to RPGs on a spectrum from something like 5e to something like PBTA, where 5e is does the thing happen, and PBTA is the thing will happen, but at what cost? It's interesting to me that in this game, there isn't even that sense of but at what cost. It is very straightforwardly a narrative moment that you control as you will, that's not overtly focused on the drawbacks, on the stakes. It's about your character's growth and the way that that moment relates to your character's growth, but doesn't necessarily cause it directly. Which I find really interesting as as a distinct feel from something like, powered by the apocalypse, or something that's a little bit crunchier and a little bit more success or failure-driven, like 5e.
1: 5e being Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, if you happen to be listening to us and you don't already know that.
0: I think the last thing I want to ask during the letters page, and I guess we'll start with you on this, Steph. What moments in this game made you feel like you were playing a superhero? The moments where...
1: Toon's superhero identity and responsibilities conflicted with the other things that she was trying to do. And she had to make these constant, constant choices about what to do right in the moment to save people without blowing up her civilian life.
0: I like that.
2: I definitely felt that in your character creation, the emphasis that you laid on, and we talked about that in character creation, the emphasis that you laid on Toon having a life outside being a superhero. And having that be a meaningful life that she was just as interested in maintaining and being invested in as being a superhero.
1: I really felt like she was living in a superhero world where there was an inner circle who knew who she was. And then these this mass of other people in the city to whom she felt responsible, but who couldn't be in on it. And I I liked the way that the city building and the villain conduct rules supported that feeling. The scene at the club and the scenes in the radio recording studio, in particular.
2: I think, de- depending on your perspective on superhero comics, I think it also felt very frequently like Toon was a superhero purely on the basis that she succeeded a lot at many things <laughs> in an we extreme way. <laughs> we yeah, did not no roll one. Yeah, no one was
0: lost. So I think during our g- our game, we
2: talked a little bit in character creation about power levels. I think Toon felt maybe a little overpowered, but that was purely a function of the the luck and what we managed to roll, what we managed to draw, and had nothing to do with her characterization or the way that we narrated those scenes. I found that interesting.
0: I think that actually ends up kind of supporting, you know, just by random chance, Steph, some of your ideas for tune of her, you know, staying in this place. She's it's not that she is is failing. And that's why she can't be a big superhero somewhere else. She's comfortable where she is. She's very much in control of her powers and able to manipulate the world successfully and to help people around her. And we saw that in The Dice. Yeah. Um,
1: She belongs here. She would love to headline larger gigs and be famous in a way that she's really not. She would love to have listeners in Los Angeles and New York and Toronto, but she's not moving there.
0: Now we're going to move to the section that we're currently calling spinoffs, retcons, and an ongoing. I want to start kind of going around the table. What's a part of this game, spinoff style, that you wish you saw in other games as well? What can other RPG authors take away from Anyone Can Wear the Mask? Let's start with you, Cece.
2: Um, I think one thing that sticks out to me about Anyone Can Wear the Mask, and it is a hill that I will die on uh, regarding RPG design, is the idea of side characters and NPCs having a mechanical effect, but not feeling purely like assets on a war table. Uh, I think this game walks a nice line in between those two, between making them feel like set dressing and, and purely set dressing, and making them feel like something that is purely a resource to be spent in a very sort of mercenary way. I love games that walk that fine line, and I love that aspect of this game for sure.
1: Agreed. This game treats non-powered, incidental, recurring NPCs very well and really requires you to create them, and I love that.
2: I'm thinking particularly of the moment in the club where Toon gave, I think it was Kay, the opportunity to feel like a hero in the moment, even though K was a non-powered individual, that felt like something that could only happen in this game or that would only be supported by the mechanics of a game like this.
0: Yeah, that came from specifically answering the prompt, how do you inspire the people around you? Because Toon rolled a six. And I think that's, that's great.
1: I think that's right. I, I like the chance that we had to see a lot of harm and tood at Kay House and in the radio studio but that might be less specific to this game.
0: How about you, Steph? What would you like to see from Anyone Can Wear the Mask and other types of RPGs?
1: I think the requirement that NPCs, non-powered incidental NPCs who pop up now and again in your hero's life, that works really well. You can create them in almost any system, I hope, but here there's a mechanic that requires you to create them and have them recur. I thought that was fun. And I liked the way that the hero creation was very storytelling oriented and asked you mechanically by choosing suits to decide which of four archetypes your hero acts out. It gives just enough guidance so that you have something to work with and allows for many, many different kinds of solo superhero stories to be told.
0: Uh, I'll reiterate that the downfall and uprising as these explicit story beats. I'm seeing this in some other games and like, for example, the watch, the end of the watch, you win, you beat the shadow. And the question is how you got there. The end of fellowship, you take down the overlord. The games are acknowledging that they're telling these kinds of stories and we're playing them because we want to experience those kinds of stories. Yeah. You know, this is sort of the genre emulation part of RPGs for better or worse. But by I feel like by saying it explicitly, the game can then put the rules in place to make it that much more meaningful. I mean, you could be playing D&D and ideally there are low points for the party and ideally they do, you know, take out Tiamat at the end. But the game doesn't force that to happen. And if it did... Maybe there's, you know, it could be that much richer for explicitly acknowledging those moments, putting, you know, we went through the script, right? You were talking about CC, sort of the way that NPCs matter. There is a script for the uprising where, you know, we you recite the names. You can only have that because this game says there is an uprising. This is going to be a moment that happens. And here's what happens during it.
2: I think it's a great point. It kind of puts me in mind of the very active and current conversation in the romance genre about happily ever after and explicitly tagging stories with happily ever after, happy for now. There is a sense of we want something out of this story and it's okay to want a specific thing and it's okay to look for a story that gives you that thing.
1: And it's okay for that thing to be the ending rather than the setting or the kind of character. It's okay to want a specific kind of plot, which means requiring a specific kind of ending, which this superhero story that this game is designed to tell will give you.
2: Exactly.
0: Now, what about retcons? So this is something that maybe you would try a little bit differently in the game, perhaps a hack, or maybe just a different way you would approach playing the game if you were to do it again. Steph, why don't we start with you?
1: Yeah. So I was lonely. I play RPGs for many reasons, but one of them is to alleviate loneliness. Uh, And this is why a lot of my favorite superhero comics and superhero stories are either about teams forming or teams being teams. And this is not capable of simulating a superhero team book. Uh, This is a simulator of a solo superhero book that's got a lot of recurring NPCs, and, but the allies, the closest you get to allies and we happen not to see them because we didn't draw jacks are people who pop up in a scene who become attached to you because you've done something transactional with them and then they'll help you out later. There's not, I mean, it's, it's a one, it's a one PC game. And as we got farther into the story that we were telling, I really felt that Toon was isolated by the game mechanic. So if there was something I could change, if, if somebody called me and said, we are doing a, a second edition of this that has more options and more ways to play, I would be very curious if this could be played with two PCs or three PCs. I, I missed, I missed friends.
2: I think I'll, I'll own up to that a little bit as the city mm-hmm. as a dm it's something i know about myself that i don't do a lot of directly spoken dialogue when i am narrating characters i'm narrating their intentions i'm narrating roughly what they're saying i'm narrating their body language but very rarely do i have direct extended conversations as npcs so i think ultimately that was my responsibility as the city to make <laughs> you, you, you feel a little less no, lonely
1: no no it's 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 you were doing great tune had friends, and Toon in particular had friends in her non-super life, but the kind of collaboration that I wish the game could have made possible is one you can really only get from uh, from multiple PCs. It's a kind you can really only get from having somebody else who's a player who's doing something different from being the villain or being all the NPCs. So i no, this is not a failure of the city. <laughs> this is a limit of anyone can wear the mask as a system, which is written for one PC and two people who are de facto co GMs. And I would have a question for Fee and, and, and Cece, which is, did you really feel the kind of sense of, of collaboration of, of push and pull and holding hands and working together that you normally associate with being a PC in a tabletop game?
0: I think there was one moment... I forget which of the scenes sort of later on in the game where we were really kind of able to go back and forth because, I mean, there is kind of a a thing like explicitly by the rules. It's the city sets up the scene and the people in it. And then the villain comes in with how they are being threatened. And I think it works a little bit better when you're able to sort of tee things up like Hey, this is, you know, this is a type of threat that I think would be kind of fun for this character. Can there be a scene where it could come, where it would make sense to come up? Um, That kind of collaboration. I I think we we did that a little bit, and I think that made things a, a bit stronger in that moment.
2: Agreed. It felt very collaborative. I think the original question is even more specifically, did it feel collaborative in the way that it's like to be a player in a party in other games? I don't know if it feels exactly like that, but it does feel collaborative, and collaborative is good.
0: As a forever GM, it is very hard for me to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Porphy. <Fee. gasps> I love it. You know I love it. All right. Cece, do you have a retcon?
2: Yeah. So I will admit from the start that I am, as a an RPG player, a glutton for punishment. So moments where my character feels like feel like they can do too many things or be a little bit too efficacious, are things that bother me. (laughs) I think when Toon was rolling straight sixes for scene after scene after scene, in my brain, both as a DM and a game designer, I was going, there should be some sort of tip mechanic here, wherein if you get three sixes in a row, something disastrous happens, just to keep you on your toes. And I think just to reintroduce that sense of narrative balance. There's no reason you couldn't house rule that in. This doesn't need to be something that I, needs, I think needs to be written into a second edition or anything. But I think at least at the kind of tables and the kind of games that I'm used to playing, there would be some sort of a consequence for succeeding so many times in a row so emphatically.
0: Yeah. Now, one thing that does happen in Anyone Can Wear the Mask is with every person you save, you do build up your renown and that then you discard that many cards during the downfall. So there is a mechanical effect of, oh, you've been quote, too successful, though the way it ends up coming out is you have a a story moment, which is the crisis, which is basically that the downfall was really bad in this way. And then also you then shuffle the rest of the cards back up and then you have a pretty perhaps beefy deck that you shuffle the the uprising card into which then brings into questions of pacing and you know we didn't run into that in this game but i sort of i agree with you that maybe some some way of having all of those successes make things a little you know we didn't have anyone lost you know it might have been nice yeah, a little a couple <laughs> tears that that tune could have shed Aww. maybe a
2: little bit or maybe there could be a sense of building up a sense of animosity with individual kings in each neighborhood right if you succeed too many times in one one neighborhood you become the nemesis of a particular king i like that idea and that is somehow reflected in the mechanics which also feels like it plays into the types of stories that this game is trying to tell the story of a superhero and their relationship to the city and their relationship to individual people in the city.
0: I would say for, for things that I would try differently, I, coming into this, I was thinking, you know, what, what would a three suit deck look like as a way of shortening it, but maybe keeping things a little less high variance? And, you know, you, you'd lose, you'd have to pick which, which suit you you lose like is there then only one where the hero is less comfortable or do you not have the, that like middle ground that No Sad was for us but actually CC after hearing you talk earlier now I'm kind of wondered about the wondering about the very long form of drawing this out in a way of doing a journaling game or something or having those each scene just be a longer role playing scene this is certainly suitable for folks who are much more into the improvisational part of this and and maybe the speaking character and kind of those aspects of it. But if you spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes on a scene, had the role of like, okay, overall, what's the vibe? Is this going successfully or not? And making building that scene together, the real sort of focus of the game, as opposed to sort of the, the combination of several scenes together, if, if that makes sense. So sort of the, by zooming in and letting this take longer, what does the game feel like then? Mm. I'm, I'm curious. Agreed. All right. Now, what if we're picked up for an ongoing, what else would you want to see for your character? What parts of the game would you want to see if we kept playing? Cece, I think we can start with you this time.
2: Well, insofar as my character is the city... I would be interested, especially in a longer form version of the game, in seeing opportunities for the city itself to change. I think one thing that makes this feel like a single session game is that ultimately the city is somewhat static. Now, we did discuss some changes that happened during the downfall, the ways that that changed the city. And some of those were reflected in the scenes that we played out after the downfall. But it felt very stark, and I kind of wished that there was maybe more of an opportunity to show growth over time and Tune's interventions as having a distinct effect on certain neighborhoods or the, the feel of certain things in the city. So I think that's one thing I'd I'd want to return to if we were to return to this city in future.
1: I I love all of that. Fi, do you want do you want to go first or? I uh, know, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, what's
0: okay. uh so Steph, what's next for Tune?
1: What's realistically next for Tune is probably some gigs on, you know, local radio and maybe increased attention to what she's doing since she played some part in saving the city, but her life isn't going to change That much as a result of these events, she's prevented the city from completely turning into Disneyland. And maybe she's, you know, made a friend in this international pop star who got taken advantage of without her her knowing. But that's pretty specific. What I would like to see for tune next is for her to make a friend with powers. (laughs) I would like to see her have some kind of way of continually working alongside someone. And having adventures that were more shared or shareable. And that might just mean I want to play this character again in a different system because I'm not sure that this system would support that. But I just want her to make a real friend.
0: I mean, the name of this podcast is Team Up Moves, and that's not a coincidence. You know, that's what we do tend to like from from superhero stories.
1: Yeah. And this is this is not a simulation of a team book. No,
2: personally, I would love to see Toon as a mentor. Oh, that yeah. would be a story I'd like to see from Toon. Oh, she's
1: she is actually one of the people who founded Girls Rock Camp when it started up in New Arcadia a couple of years ago. So she's already you know, doing that as a musician, but there are going to need to be other superheroes in this city for her to mentor a superhero. She'd love to see that, too.
0: The thing that I would want in in an ongoing or taking this further is more about those kings, and then also bringing in the jacks and the aces. I I just love that there is sort of this mini boss thing. I, I love that there are these. It says it, it describes them in the rules as as people who could help but choose not to. And I love this statement about power and responsibility that that is and. I, I want to see our hero take these people out. And, uh, if we were to play again, that's, that's almost worth stacking the deck for, I think for me is, you know, let's, let's have these kings, you know, get their comeuppance if they can.
1: So that brings me to something that I was hoping you'd bring up, but can I drop it in?
0: Please, go right ahead.
1: Which is that if you play this game for long enough, you end up simulating city government. (laughs) And you can do a lot of things if you drill farther into those mini bosses, one of which... And I, I love these kinds of stories because I want to make post-revolutionary state formation and infrastructure maintenance and coalition building as sexy as revolutions are. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know if, if this game could do that, but a game where the downfall is we have gotten rid of the old rickety ruling coalition that was supposedly pro-labor, but, you know, didn't really do everything it promised and only fixed half the bridges and so on. And we've put in this extremely shiny new media darling of the, the rising classes. And then this new figure who we thought would satisfy the hero's own aspirations turns out to be radically incompetent or a crook and you know the status quo ante wasn't as bad as we thought that would i don't know if that would be a story that would be fun for either of you to to tell uh, <laughs> but it could certainly be a story about unions which we ended up telling anyway
2: that's fascinating i am now just staring off into the middle distance comparing the the plot points beat for beat of our game to like parks and recreation and there are more similarities than you would think so oh. i'm fascinated with that idea
1: parks and rec with powers uh is, is honestly what I wish this game could encompass. And maybe it could. I would love that.
0: We are now having just like spinning off where we're, we're needing to create new superhero games based on the... We already have such a backlog. <laughs> I got
1: to <laughs> yeah. write these down. Being Chris Claremont, Parks and Rec with Powers, what else do we have?
0: Those are the two so far, but there's still a little bit of show left. So the last thing that we do in the back matter is talk about back issues, what are comic book storylines that you think someone should read that are based that are similar to the story that we can tell with anyone can wear the
1: mask? are you, you're looking at me. Are you looking at me?
0: I mean, I'm just looking at the camera, but I, I mean <laughs> you you are expected to be able to answer this at some point. So I think it's more the question I'd like CC if you have anything to chime in.
2: I, I can chime in with examples of um like individual superhero like books or individual superhero arcs, but I feel like Steph can do that. Ten times better than I can, so I'd just as soon
0: leave it up to her <laughs> okay let's let's let her kick uh, kick it off and then okay, so right. this is
1: specifically a simulation of solo hero books, books that have one hero in the title that accrete a large supporting cast or get you attached to a whole bunch of different locations that the hero visits where there are stationary supporting characters. And one such book is Daredevil. There have been a lot of Daredevil runs, and I am not a Daredevil expert. The most important run of Daredevil is one that maybe hasn't aged so well because of the sexism and the violence, but it looks great, which is the Frank Miller run. And people generally really like the Andesenti written run of of Daredevil. But this is a book this is a game where Daredevil is a established company-owned property that it simulates very well. The others, Luke Cage, both the Luke Cage in the comics, who's very much tied to a neighborhood, and uh, who's very much tied to the life of the city, and the Luke Cage television show, which was not exactly my cup of tea, but very, very well done for what it was and told these kinds of stories. I've got two more, and I think one of them, MC Fee, is going to pop in and, and talk about first. So
0: I was... In preparation for this, was rereading the Miss Marvel the run that was that was her introduction, and and certainly the start of that is much more about her finding herself, and then it gets into the Generation Y storyline. But there's a part that's the lead up to the 2015 Secret Wars, like we're ending every book and restarting at number one kind of thing, where Miss Marvel is not in the Secret Wars; she's in Jersey City. Watching the world end. And she's rallying together with, you know, the people that we've seen in the neighborhood and her classmates. And they're all coming together in the high school and supporting each other in order to get through this. And I was reading that. And I was like, this is, I mean, this is anyone can wear the mask right here. Just this moment of the city, like looking to Miss Marvel to like, how can you help us? And how can you help us? Help each other together. I, I I can highly recommend that, and I, I thought that was a great uh, a great part.
1: I, I think that's right. That's the Willow Wilson written Ms. Marvel, starting from the third trade paperback, or from a, about volume one issue like ten or eleven. A couple others. I mentioned that you could play this game at a cosmic level if you wanted, as long as you had a bunch of neighborhoods and a solo hero circulating among them. I suspect, in fact, I'm sure there are Silver Surfer stories and Silver Surfer runs that could do that with this game at a galaxy level. And then the last place I'd want to send you would be the creator-owned series Astro City, which very much features the city as a character. And there are runs that are about one hero And that hero's relationship to a neighborhood, I think it's trade paperback three or four, the Jack in the Box story. There are individual runs of Astro City that do the things about neighborhoods and cities and how cities change that anyone can wear the mask does. Astro City is also, honestly, if if you're someone who likes inhabiting new superhero stories and superhero RPGs, Astro City is a very good place to visit in general. And it has recently returned to publishing single issues. There is a new Astro City floppy for the first time in, I don't know, four years. Someone should say something about Bat People because I'm sure that Jeff Stormer, just from reading the game materials, had Bat People in mind. But I've been told that if you become an X person and a Bat person, you have no room in your head for anything else.
2: <laughs> so um, I'm a
0: little scared to become it's, a serious Bat a- person. Yeah, it's okay. I think some of them are self-evident unless, you know, there's something that you remember that you specifically call
2: out. It's interesting. The first thing that I thought as you two were talking was of a series called Skyward, which I just looked up is by Joe Henderson. I don't know if any of you have read it. And I was like, oh, this is a fascinating example. It has that neighborhood feel that I think we're calling out in all the other examples. But that is, in fact, not a superhero comic. The main character has no special powers. It is just a universe in which gravity on Earth has basically gone away. And so it makes it feel like characters have different have powers, but they actually don't. They're just floating in zeros, zero G and have varying degrees of skill at maneuvering that. So that is not a good example. Talk about Discworld if you want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm always down to talk about Discworld. All right. Well, I think that brings this run to its conclusion. Cece, thank you very much for joining us for the game and the discussion afterwards.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And I really enjoyed being able to do a postmortem on this particular session. It was a, it was a great time.
0: So if people want to find you on the internet and if you want to be found, how could that happen?
2: Uh, If you'd like to find me, I am on Twitter at Mancuso Sci-Fi. I sometimes write things about popular culture, but if I do, I post about them on Twitter. So if you'd like to hear my hot takes on anything in pop culture, or if you'd like to hear me talk about all of the campaigns that I'm running all at the same time, that is where to do it.
0: I'd also like to acknowledge and give a thank you to Jeff Stormer, the author of Anyone Can Wear the Mask. This is both a lovely game to play, and he was incredibly gracious and quick in responding to my email about some rules questions. And as someone who really does want to play rules as written, I'm forever grateful for that. Steph? Yes? How... how <laughs> How do we say goodbye?
1: I (laughs) think we just don't. I generally try to make cat sounds rather than saying goodbye. (laughs) Uh, I will add uh, that if you get a chance to read CC's writings on popular culture and less popular culture, I, I recommend that you do so. I think I'm supposed to say where you can find me. I am accommodatingly ACC. O-M-M-O-D. I, I think
0: you, you actually don't. I don't we're, say that. I think we're, we're enough we're enough recurring. That we're
1: that enough we recurring that I don't tell you where you could yeah, find we're me. We're in the show notes. Okay. just You should just find CC on on, on the internet. I recommend you doing that. They're, they're great.
0: Well, hey, thanks. All right. I think that's it. And that's the first run in the books. We've been playing Anyone Can Wear the Mask by Jeff Stormer. You can find it on his itch page, jeffstormer.itch.io slash mask. We're going to take a week off, then we'll be back with our second run, which will cover the 6th edition of the seminal superhero RPG from Hero Games, Champions. Team Up Moves is a production of Fiona Hopkins and Stephanie Burt. Copyright 2022. Follow us on Twitter as at TeamUpMoves and individually as at Fiona Wim and at Accommodatingly. Check the show notes for spelling. You can find all of our episodes and drop us an email through our website at teamupmoves.com. Our theme music is Play by Sleepyhead. Find more of their music at sleepyheadrockband.com and get ready for their new album, which comes out August 19th. And hey, we're a new show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend. Word of mouth is the best way to help us grow. Thanks for listening, pals.